Hello and welcome to the Truth About Local Government, a podcast aimed at bringing to the local community key leaders within local government and to share their experiences, to provide insights and to drive engagement. Today I'm absolutely delighted to have Peter Holt, the Chief Executive of Uttlesford District Council, joining us to discuss a very, very interesting topic. But what does he bring with him? And I'm delighted. I mean, I must admit, one of the chief executives to watch, in my opinion, over the coming next coming years to come. But, you know, he has 25 years experience across the NHS, Parliament, policing and now indeed local government. So thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, Peter. My pleasure, Matt. Thank you. So today's topic, we're going to be talking about the 2023 National Risk Register. Now, for those of you home who maybe sat there going, what is that? Um, the 2023 National Risk Register is the external version of the National Security Risk Assessment. In other words, it's the government's assessment of the most serious risks facing the UK at the moment. It provides the government's updated assessment of the likelihood and the potential impacts of a broad range of risks that may directly affect the UK and its interests. So I'll kick things off, Peter. How do you, as a chief executive, prepare and prioritise with your planning to deal with such a wide variety of threats? Well, it's really helpful that the government produces and publishes this document. They refresh it every few years. The last refresh was 2020. So there's been an awful lot of learning since uh, because of the pandemic that's fed into this. And at a local level, because there's so much that local councils do, uh, in partnership with all the other agencies at the local level. So the NHS at a very local level, the police, the fire service, all the other agencies at a very local level. So when, when there's something affecting the whole country or the whole continent or the whole world, we reasonably look to the government to get a grip and to show the lead, to understand what the issue is, to tell us what needs to happen. But an awful lot of that delivery, and I think we all saw this during the, the pandemic, happens at a very local level by, by people who know their way around the, the villages, the towns, the cities, what the actual issues are, who the lo exactly who is who in the local communities, and actually has staff on the ground who can get out to people and do whatever it is that needs doing. So local government uh, actually plays a really big role, uh, all added together across the whole country in some national and international issues. So helping us uh, at a local level when the government uh, republished just a week or two ago their, their 2023 national strategic risk register uh, i'm a bit of a geek but when i heard about this on the radio because i looked for it a couple of months ago and i wonder when they were going to publish the latest one so when i heard it had come out on the radio i was straight on finding it uh, on the government website and reading through it and, and beginning the conversation in my organization about what in that is new because most of these issues aren't uh, aren't entirely new to us, but but there are different twists and the likelihood and the impact of them that the government is assessing. Well, that has changed in some uh, important respects since 2023. So. What we're doing is challenging ourselves to refresh our approach. Uh, so it's trickling down from the government to each of us in our own little council areas, big or small council areas, to work out what to do. It's, I mean, I, I just want to pick a few points there that you discussed there. And a lot of these risks are not new risks, but there are risks that seem to be gaining momentum. Um, climate change, we've seen what's happening in Europe at the moment with the wildfires, and, and that was obviously mentioned in the reports. Um, terrorism, unfortunately, is kind of a consistent variable that's that's there. But 
I guess what's interesting that I'd like your opinion on is, do you think COVID has changed the way in which central government views risk or the preparation of our local councils to deal with risk or their approach to local councils to deal with risk? Uh, the, the, the world is a completely different place because of the pandemic. I think at a national level, certainly for us at a local level. I, I've been around the block. Thank you for the lovely introduction. I, I've worked in the NHS. I started working in the NHS in uh, 1996. And I remember conversations from last century. You you probably weren't even born in, in 1996, Matt. But I was part of conversations at a local level in East London in 1996 about bird flu, about pandemics. But uh, until a couple of years ago, the, even the word pandemic, the, there might only have been, you know, five, 10 percent of, of people in the country who, who, who ever used the word, even knew what it meant. Whereas now it's probably 99 percent know what a pandemic is and, and why it's really important to us. So the world is a different place because we now understand that some of these things and the pandemic was there loud and clear before COVID-19 came along. A pandemic was on the government national risk registers. Lots of work had been done. Not enough, but actually the, the COVID inquiry will really answer the question as to how much, how far away from enough was done to prepare for, for, for um, the COVID-19 pandemic. But it was there beforehand. So now as a result, I think a lot of people in, in positions of responsibility at the national and at the local level are understanding, hmm, Something like that was on the risk register five years, 10 years ago, 20, 25 years ago, and yet we weren't all fully ready. We we <coughs> thought it was a very um, only occasional risk. So hopefully we'd all get through our working lives never having come across one really impacting massively in the UK. Uh, so um, maybe we don't need to be that ready. But it turns it's out- It's interesting that, isn't it? It's almost that, I mean, there's, I can't remember what his name was, there was a, um, uh, a chap who worked in property development and I think his name will come back to me I imagine after this podcast recording but he bought random bits of land and they had very low value and he had a catastrophe theory that it is inevitable that something unlikely will happen it's just the case you know and I guess you know from from your position obviously leading the council and seeing the political and obviously the officers working do you feel the community is looking for greater reassurance as to how you are planning for risk now than before COVID. Interesting question. It, it'd be it'd be good to, to to know how much it is in the forefront of people's minds, or whether or not we're all beginning to allow. Most people uh, are beginning to allow themselves to move on from the pandemic and think that was just a blip. There won't be another blip. Um, but it'd be interesting to find out. Uh, I admit I don't really have an insight into that. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering. No, it's just interesting because I, I think the you know in terms of when you are building these policies, you're building longer term strategies. It's just. Obviously, you're looking at what is likely to happen and therefore how much funding to allocate to it. But I think it's interesting from from again, I can only speak from my own personal experience, but there's that vulnerability that COVID created in terms of are we ready for and what does the risk of tomorrow? I mean, I don't know how much of it was. They talk about cybersecurity, um, uh, you know, during um, the report. And I mean, AI is going to be a fascinating one as well, isn't it, in terms of how you regulate that and how you use it? Because it's all these things that could be a, an advantage. But um, I am waffling off to a direction. I guess my, my question, Peter, is what do you think is the biggest threat right now that you feel is absolutely critical that um, leaders like yourself around the country are getting themselves ready for and, and kind of taking the proper steps to you know, avoid um, risk? 
Well, let me give you two answers to that question. Um, uh, one for, for all around the country and then a second very specific one for, for my area to show you why it's important that this gets thought about at a very local level. So the, the, the straight answer to your straight question for the whole country is the next pandemic. So hopefully not another COVID one. But I don't know what type it's going to be any more than anyone else does. But there is going to be another pandemic at some stage. The government's uh, this latest 2023 version of the Strategic Risk Register, uh, the government estimates, I think, that the likelihood uh, of uh, the, the next uh, major pandemic of that scale is uh, it's, a, it's a, a category four likelihood, which um, is, I think, between uh, five years and 20 years. So they're anticipating that somewhere in five years, six years, eight years, 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, 20 years, but probably not as far away as 25 years, we'll have another pandemic. Probably not as close as one year, two year, three year or four years, but somewhere in our lifetimes, in our working lifetimes, probably quite possibly in this decade, either this decade or next decade, the government is anticipating that there will be another pandemic, potentially of the same scale and certainly the same level of impact. So that I think is the when you think of, of, of a risk is uh, uh, and how big a risk it is. There are two dimensions to think of. There is how likely it is and then how big a deal it is if it happens. So the pandemic is one of only, I think, four uh, issues identified that the government reckons would have the biggest impact. We all know what the impact the, the COVID-19 pandemic had, with only three other risks out of 70 odd in this government document that they've identified would have the same scale of risk. Not directly comparable uh, because they assess risk in terms of um, the highest level of risk, uh, which the COVID, the next pandemic does fall into, would be, I think, over a thousand deaths or over 10 billion pounds of cost. Uh, and there are only three other things, things like banking failures that are as serious in terms of their impact. In terms of likelihood, uh, the pandemic is in the second highest category. So they're not anticipating it'll happen in the next one to five years, but more in the, I think, five years to 20 years mark. But combine those two things, the likelihood of it and the impact of it. And the straight answer to your straight question is that I think is the biggest risk for the whole country. But on a very local level for my area, Uttlesford is uh, the northwest corner of Essex. It's a beautiful uh, part of the countryside. Um, 247 square miles of absolute rural idyll. Uh, some beautiful market towns, some chocolate box, beautiful villages. That's about 100 of them. But it also contains Stansted Airport. And one of the big issues for us coming out against three of the government's uh, risk issues are risks to the country, for example, of the need to mass evacuate British citizens from another country. We had that recently. We had that just in May this year with, I think, the estimates initially were up to 4,000 British nationals needed to be evacuated from Sudan. Well, most of those landed at Stansted Airport. Some landed at uh, Gatwick Airport, some landed at uh, Birmingham, but most of them landed at Stansted Airport over the course of a week, including a long weekend in May. And once they got through border, actually they were my and our other local partners' responsibility. So mine is a relatively small organisation as a local district council. We employ about 330 staff. But we had to get ready for up to 4,000 people landing in the space of a week, including in the middle of the night, British nationals being evacuated via Cyprus from Sudan and landing at Stansted Airport. That wasn't just my organisation, all our neighbours, the police, county council, the NHS, all sorts of really key voluntary sector organisations as well, locally and from 
around the country all descended on Stansted Airport and Birmingham and Gatwick to help out. So we were there more handed and we were ready. But when this got through the government's stage of the process, which was uh, flying them out to Cyprus and then flying them from Cyprus to Stansted, and once they got through border control, they were ours. So that is an example of something that we're taking our lived experience just from the month before last in my bit of Essex, and we're cross-referencing that to the government's risk register because the need for a mass evacuation of British nationals from an overseas country for whatever reason is one of the 70 or so things on the government's national risk register. So my opposite numbers in the councils, for example, um, Solihull that contains Birmingham Airport, Manchester that contains Manchester Airport, North Somerset that contains Bristol Airport, Crawley that contains Gatwick Airport, and so on. So these councils that you might think of, you think of Crawley, uh, council, uh, are you going to be thinking that they've got a major responsibility for the international evacuation of British nationals from some country in future that has a volcano eruption or a coup? Probably not. But people in Crawley, just like Uttlesford, know that because they're host to a major airport, they've got an awful lot of work to get ready for. It's really not part of the day job, and which most people, most local taxpayers, probably wouldn't imagine has anything to do with us. That's just for everyone at home who. I mean, like myself, I would I can't even begin to think about how you prepare for such an eventuality. When that happened last month, what did the council? Ha- what did they? What did you have to do? Like, what was? What's the steps? So they've, they've arrived, and what are the cost implications? Well, uh, for, for for the one week of Sudanese evacuees, and we had in the end just over a thousand arrive at Stansted, but that was more than uh, I think the rest of the country put together, the rest of the airports in the country put together. Uh, our expenditure over those seven or eight days, including a bank holiday weekend, was about half a million pounds, which in the term of a government is not that much money. But but my district council spends a grand total of about 19 million pounds a year on all of our services so half a million quid is a couple of weeks worth of spending on absolutely everything we do for all of our residents put together so it wasn't that wasn't a little blip for us and happily the government's uh, undertaken to pay us back for that but in terms of, of, of that's, spends, that's what we had to do <laughs> But what we and our voluntary sector partners, I cannot speak too highly of the local voluntary sector partners and our partners in the police, the NHS, the county council, all of our neighbouring district councils as well, all mucked in together. We had to open a humanitarian assistance centre, took over a big airport ballroom, a big airport hotel ballroom right next to the airport. Uh, so when every single person arrived, they got seen by people. Uh, uh, volunteers or professional staff from the right agency if they'd got any immediate health issues because people got off those planes um, both massively traumatised and also uh, many of them also suffering ongoing chronic health conditions where they'd had to flee without their medication so we had health issues we had trauma we had a lot of them they they were evacuated because they were British nationals but they might never have lived here or not lived here for 20 years didn't have anywhere to go to or any relatives so we had homelessness issues they got off the plane at 2.30 in the morning, many of them, because that's the time the government was able to get charter flights and get them out. And of course, even the the, the, the trains from Stansted don't start till 5.30 in the morning. So they had to go somewhere. So all those things, uh, arriving penniless, often sick, um, scared out their wits, traumatised. A lot of the people who arrived had left husbands, wives, mothers, brothers, sisters, children, parents on the tarmac in Sudan because... They'd got a passport and were allowed to get on the plane, but their immediate relatives weren't. 
And some of them were arriving to the news to find that the relatives they'd left behind had, had been killed. So the, the degree of trauma that suddenly it was responsibility of local authorities and people on the ground locally that, that our local taxpayers don't really imagine probably that that's our job. So it was a really big endeavour for us. I mean, that is, I mean, thank you to you and all the people that are involved in that, because it does, it's incredible the... Um... Well, just emotional toll of that for, for those that are trying to vol- that are volunteering to help and also obviously for those poor souls that are coming and living through that experience going back to the preparation what would you say are the the hurdles the barriers to getting prepared well for, for, for something like that which is a risk for us uh, we've got a really solid relationship with the airport operator itself because of course it's in our district we, we see each other whenever we need to see each other we talk all the way through the year uh for there the relationship is probably more one with government. So the difference in, in the rules that the government makes and how it chooses to implement them and what exceptions it, chairs, it, it chooses to make varies for, for each international crisis. So the government nationally stepped up massively over the Ukraine situation and it invented the Homes for Ukraine scheme where it reached out to local people. So many people across the whole country offered up uh, places in their own homes for Ukrainian evacuees. Well, that wasn't there for the previous um, time there was an international crisis and thousands of people arrived on our door. Uh, And uh, the next crisis after that, uh, there were yet different schemes. So there wasn't the equivalent of that for Sudan. There isn't the exact equivalent of that for for Afghan uh, evacuees, people who'd worked for us in Afghanistan, possibly for the armed forces or the British government for many years as interpreters, for example. There was a different scheme for them. So every time there is uh, a set of evacuations, a set of refugees that for, on, for whatever grounds the government is welcoming into this country, there's a completely different set of rules. But we as a local council, when people get off the plane and come through the door and don't have anywhere to go and don't know what the rules mean and don't know how it works, and we have to pick them up and and try and work out where to get them a train ticket to if they haven't got anywhere to go and where they're going to stay when they get there and whether or not they are or aren't entitled to NHS support, whether or not they are or aren't entitled to benefits. Um, when they got off the, the the plane, well, they need an answer there and then, and we often don't have it. So uh, probably the biggest challenge for us is, is is to help government understand that when it does the right thing, and these examples I've given, they're all absolutely the right thing. When it does the right thing, sometimes it may think just a little bit more through what happens after they've gotten off the plane and, uh, and they start presenting to us as a small local district council supported by all our colleagues locally as to what on earth we're actually going to say to them absolutely absolutely and i guess kind of going for away from the um the uh, kind of taking uh, kind of uh, people who evacuated from from war zones yeah. the broader risk so cybersecurity, um you know uh, climate change all those other kind of 80 odd or 79 which it was uh the risks what are the hurdles broadly speaking to having a proper plan to to tackle as many of those as you can Well, most of them we we integrate into our day job. Uh, For example, uh, planning to cope with some of the impacts of the the climate crisis is what we do all, all year long. So as local authorities, we plan. Uh, we plan what can get built, how much, uh, what gets built uh, near floodplains, near or on floodplains, for example. That's long been a responsibility of the local authority and the environment agency as well. But local government, when it's doing its planning, decides whether or not it's okay to build a factory or set houses next to a river that tends to flood onto that as a floodplain. And we all know now because of the the uh, the 
the climate crisis, um, there are going to be more extreme weather events. So it's taking our you know, decades, if not centuries, uh, of work and applying the new understanding to it to try and do it in the right way with, with that example. Uh, whether or not it's around uh, cyber, uh, there's an awful lot. Government talks to each other when, uh, for example, someone applies to a local council for housing benefit. Um, our systems talk to the national government system. So we all need to make sure that we're not infecting each other. And the government, those computer systems, the government has very high technical standards before they let small bits of local government like us join in with the data exchange to make sure that we're not going to infect them or indeed that they're not going to infect us with some virus. Uh, so even though we're a really small organisation, and my IT department is five people. So to make sure that my IT department is completely on top of the level of cyber threat is a really big challenge. But helpfully, um, happily, the government does provide an awful lot of support and advice, as well as asking us to meet very high standards. So pretty well whatever the the issue is if it's around um someone makes something go bang someone bad makes something go bang uh whether or not it's a a, a state uh sending a missile over or perhaps more likely uh, uh, an individual terrorist setting off a bomb somewhere or other uh whatever it is that the, the local agencies have for, for again decades if not centuries been really good at understanding how to cope with these things so whether or not um in the first instance when something goes off the police or the fire service tend to take responsibility and the nhs and all of local government falls in behind them and then at due playing our role so local councils for example is something goes bang it might be a gas explosion so it might be an accident or if it's bang on purpose nonetheless if people have put out their houses because they can't stay in the houses anymore it'll be your local council who steps up probably opens the local church hall or the leisure centre and takes all their camp beds or inflatable beds out of storage and all their blankets and all their bottles of water and gets their volunteers down there and gets them somewhere to stay overnight until they can wander off 50 miles away to, to stay with their sister for a while. So councils uh, have long been prepared and been ready to step into the local resilience forum in the jargon, to step into the local networks uh, of responding to, to that kind of crisis. And then ultimately, the police or the fire service who lead on those things when you've got flashing 999 lights and it's on the day and when you're investigating crimes and coping with, with people who are unwell. Once it moves onto the stage where it's all calmer again and we're beginning to rebuild, actually the lead generally at that point passes over to the local council for the return to normality stage, at which point it's, it is literally rebuilding. It might be rebuilding houses or roads or whatever's um, not there anymore, whatever got affected, but it's also rebuilding communities and rebuilding community confidence so that's where councils fit into that uh, i mean you, it's very clear why you're the head of communications at so many organizations please because that was a fantastic response um i mean i want to go back just a second i mean we talked obviously about you know um the ability to be prepared and, and the agility to you know regardless of what the kind of the issue that arises having the kind of the the plans and the procedures and the people and the experience to tackle those problems I saw uh, in the MJ that the, um, the they're no longer going to be using hotels or trying to reduce significantly the use of hotels for asylum seekers due to the cost implications. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I mean, you know, where central government makes a, such a broad decision like that, and how is that received at a local level, you know, in terms of when there are these central government making decisions that then limits the ability at a local level to to react accordingly to such crisis? 
both with a quiet, calm understanding and usually behind closed doors occasionally, um, hands in the air dismay. Uh, <laughs> is the honest answer to the question. Yeah. I mean, the, the particular example you gave, the, the, the latest was, um, there's all sorts of jargon in here, which I won't try and define. Uh, the, the latest government announcement, I think the one from the NJ you're referring to just in the last week or two, uh, has been the uh, enacting of the decision the government took a few months ago. So at least they gave us months and months notice of stopping bridging hotels for Afghan uh, refugees. Well, happily in my district, we didn't have any, but just next, next door in Chelmsford, I don't know the numbers, but it's huge. And there was just nowhere in Chelmsford for, them, uh, for the local authority if people put out of a hotel by government and haven't worked out where they're going to go yet and they turn up at the local authority um, as homeless, Chelmsford hasn't got the volume of places to be able to, to, to put people. So uh, changes like that, you can absolutely see why the government does it. No one wants to be spending taxpayers' money month after month after month, if not year after year, uh, coping with something instead of finding a long-term sustainable solution. It's not good for taxpayer spend. It's also not good for the people stuck in hotels instead of being able to, to find a home. But part of the problem is when the government tackles a symptom, and that I will say is an example of a symptom of something that needs tackling, but without helping making sure there's an actual underlying cure to the cause. And in that example, I mean, actually finding permanent homes for people. Well, it, it doesn't help. It just moves the issue along from one agency to another. It shunts a cost from one taxpayer funded bit of government, and the central government to another one. And at times as well, to be honest, the, the, uh, the, the Home Office, when they go and book hotels uh, and, uh, and often local councils only find out about them once they've moved people into them. And even now and then there's been the odd occasion where the Home Office has um, gazumped a local council because local councils sometimes have to book hotels for for local people for whom they have a statutory homelessness duty when they run out of one whatever temporary accommodation each council has so sometimes councils book hotels and just occasionally the home office has come along and offered much more money for a hotel that a council was already using for homelessness uh, for, for its own local homelessness problem uh, which hasn't helped at all. So uh, the communication and the joint working and the understanding, lots of bits of government are great. Lots of government departments are great at working with local government. Home office, not so much. And I guess that, that brings us really, really nicely to my, my final question, which you may already feel as if you just answered with that, with that lovely answer. If there was one thing that you could change that would make your job easier as chief executive to manage risk accordingly, what would it be? Communication with government and understanding, um, it almost certainly works two ways. I bet there are, there are probably civil servants or even government ministers listening to this may be thinking that guy doesn't understand that the pressures we face in Whitehall. Uh, and they're probably right. And let me apologise. If you want to invite me or others in to show us the pressure so we can understand it, be a bit more understanding, fair challenge. But I would say, I don't think um, some bits of government always quite understand how when they pull a lever at the centre, uh, and imagine that when people are dispersed around the country, for example, that's just going to work. Well, it ain't quite that easy. So more understanding from government. I completely agree. And it's something that uh, time and time again, you know, if there's communication, if there is thought and, you know, thinking through the consequence at a local level, the impact, it makes our job easier. But I, I, Peter, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on. This has been Truly, the highlight of my week. It's been lovely to talk to you. We're going to come back on uh, and do another episode in, in a couple of weeks on some other kind of pertinent issues. But um, thank you so much for coming on today. My pleasure. Good to see you, Matt. And for anybody who is near Uttlesford, please do stop in and see it. It is a beautiful part of the country. And um, 
a huge array of things to do there. So thank you. But if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, share and click the follow button. But from us here, goodbye for now. Goodbye.